there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and through the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and lead with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. Today, I am thrilled because I'm speaking to special guest, Dr. Richard Stone, and he is here with me today. I'm going to read his bio briefly, although I couldn't even begin to cover all of his vast accolades and accomplishments, but I'm going to do my best here. So Dr. Stone currently serves as a specialist executive at Deloitte, where he provides strategic guidance on healthcare transformation, population health, and policy development. He previously served as the vice president, um, excuse me, he previously served until July of 2021 as the acting undersecretary for health of the Veterans Health Administration, where he led the nation's largest healthcare system through the recent pandemic all while remaining an active practicing physician. He also has extensive entrepreneurial experience that includes more than 35 years of small business medical practice ownership. His final assignment for the Army and the Department of Defense examined the cost structure of the entire DOD healthcare system as part of the establishment of the DOD Defense Health Agency. And as part of this effort, he personally led the multidisciplinary joint task force that led the provided business case analysis and process re-engineering to 10 major shared service areas, encompassing more than $30 billion in annual military health system expenses. This resulted in more than $1.2 billion in savings for the DOD health system. Dr. Stone has testified extensively before the Health and Senate Oversight Committees, and he has served for four years as a member of the DOD Recovering Warrior Task Force, who reports to Congress and the DOD and has resulted in substantial changes to the management of our wounded warriors. Um, Dr. Stone, I could go on and on um, about all of your accomplishments, but most specifically, you have led our nation's largest healthcare system through a time of unprecedented um, grief, tragedy, loss, healthcare upheaval. I have so many questions I want to ask you, but let's start with this. On this podcast, we talk about trauma-informed medicine, and I can't begin to imagine that leading our country's largest healthcare system through the pandemic, there must have been so many levels of stress and adversity. Can you just start with a story? What was this like? Um, Did you sign up for this position and know that you were going to be leading us through a pandemic? Talk to us about this. Amy, first of all, let me say thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the chance for us to have a conversation. No, I when I was hired to come back to the VA, so I came out of uniform in 2014, was asked to come lead uh, as the uh, chief operating officer of the of the VA through um, recovery from the pandemic. Uh, I'm sorry, recovery from the uh, lack of access to healthcare um, Mm -hmm. that occurred in Phoenix, Arizona and resulted in the death of a number of veterans. But I was brought in as a change agent and and I was brought in to uh, move change very quickly. And I stayed for a couple of years, uh, then left the VA when the Trump team came in. And that's not a political statement. Uh, That is a statement that I thought change makers should should move uh, very quickly. You're not building a lot of consensus uh, but you're, you're trying to get the organization righted. And uh, so I stepped away for about a year. Then they asked me to come back under the Trump administration and then the Biden administration as I, the acting undersecretary of health. So let me ask you a question. Um, what does it mean to be a change maker in healthcare specifically, to be asked to come in and be a change maker? Okay, so it's not unique to healthcare. There is change that is done where you build consensus. And that consensus creates followership. And that followership causes enduring change. There are organizations that are within crisis. Uh, The VA was in one in 2014 uh, up through 2016. 
2018 when that was revealed that there was thousands of veterans waiting on waiting lists and some of them died waiting for health care. Mm -hmm. um, it was an extraordinarily disruptive time for the organization. And um, to be a change maker in that situation during crisis means you're just going to make decisions and there's no time to build consensus. Now, mm -hmm. if you enter the crisis after building substantial followership, you can work uh, in a much different manner because you, you have the trust of people that are following you. When I came in in, in 2014, I had none. Uh, there was no followership. I was just making very difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. Some of those were personnel decisions, which, which clearly uh, doesn't endear you to um, the vast majority of employees when you're removing what could be very popular people. So I don't view healthcare change different than leading any other organization. You know, I've led people in combat. I've led uh, organizations in the civilian healthcare sector, uh, as well as um, through, uh, through civilian government senior executive leadership. So having led all those organizations, I find all leadership about the same. And it's about creating creating confidence in leaders and that are subordinate to you. And when you do that, to make sure that those leaders have a chance to express their opinions, to take risk, to, to confront uh, what they feel is wrong in what you're doing, and uh, to have open, honest dialogue as you move forward. So, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, Save Every Life You Can. Uh, which was the motto we followed in the VA as we realized that our fourth mission, and, and let me pause at this point for your listeners that may not know, um, the VA has four missions. First, to care for veterans. Uh, so people that have finished their uniform service, care for veterans. And there's about 18 million veterans in America. About nine and a half million are enrolled in VA healthcare. Mm -hmm. They like VA healthcare. Our satisfaction levels are well above 95%. They recommend VA healthcare to other veterans and VA healthcare is growing about four to 5% per year. Our second mission is to do research on those diseases and injuries that occur during wartime and that emerge in veterans after um, exposure to things like Agent Orange or burn pits or depleted uranium and the enduring uh, mental health problems that can occur from exposure to uh, prolonged emotionally traumatic events or even physically traumatic events. The third mission is to act as uh, in education. And what most people don't know is that the VA every day accepts 122,000 residents and nursing students and respiratory therapy students across the nation. We're the largest provider of clinical education in the nation. So you'll hear people say, well, just make the VA go away and send everybody to the commercial sector. If you did that, you would collapse the entire educational system uh, for um, medical professionals in America. But our fourth mission, which is most germane to our discussion today, our fourth mission is to be the backstop of the American healthcare system when it is overwhelmed. So there are um, about a million beds in America in uh, well over 6,000 hospitals. Those million beds are usually filled to about 80 to 85% in a well-run healthcare system. Um, what happens when they become overwhelmed? What happens when a portion of the healthcare system collapses? Mm -hmm. Our job, very quietly, is to be the backstop for that system. Now, um, at the time I was operating the VA, I operated 24,000 beds, 8,000 of which were acute care beds. You can imagine trying to align those beds mm -hmm. to the needs of the nation was something no one had done for 100 years years. Now we were well practiced at uh, things like hurricane response and our response to Katrina where we lost a hospital in Katrina 
um, when we lost the New Orleans VA. Um, after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, uh, I put uh, 48 psychologists on the ground uh, within 12 hours to help federal law enforcement reunite families with the you know nearly 50 victims of that um, of that nightclub shooting from a single shooter. But we we do these things very quietly. Uh, um, and no one really sort of knows we're there until now. And we've well, done that mission for 50 years. And, and I, I want to reframe. So here's what I'm hearing um, from Rich. And, and just so you, all the listeners know, uh, he gave me permission to call him Rich, although he deserves and has earned the title of Major General and Dr. Stone. Um, but we're, we're keeping it um, uh, informal here. But to care for vets, to research, to act in education, and to be the backstop of the American healthcare system. And you said doing so quietly. And yet, whoa. In February of 2020, January of 2020, it was a loud, resounding, huge call. Uh, it was, Amy. And um, so we started our response in December of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, you might expect that because I have uh, about 100 people that spend their time looking at worldwide health threats, um, I got a call uh, at Christmas time in 2020. And my 2019? head, 2019, 2019, yep. you are right, <laughs> um, 2019, and uh, Paul Kim, who led my emergency operations, was a very experienced guy, had uh, worked for the state of New York during 9-11, uh, um, had been on uh, the debris mound for well over a month, in fact, describes himself as of all of those uh, rescuers that were on that debris mound in New York City uh, after 9-11, he is the only survivor. And wow. uh, so he worked for me, he called me and he said, you know, Rich, I, we're, we've got a problem in Wuhan, China. And he described the fish market, he described this disease. And he said, you know, we don't know how honest the Chinese are being, but I think we have something that's, that's gonna be very, similar to what we saw with Ebola. Now, um, I had been in uniform during Ebola. Um, there had been 11,000 deaths nation uh, worldwide. There had been very few deaths in the United States, thank, thank goodness. But, um, you know, we, it sort of sent chills through me at that point. And we, may, we agreed at that point that we would begin our preparation in December of 2019. And I called the secretary at Christmas in 2019. And I said, look, we're going through all of our supplies, we're all of our equipment. Now, this may be a major worldwide event. Wow. And it was mid-January that we began the response to the cruise ship passengers. Right. Um, I did not realize it, but um, there is as many as 600,000 people afloat on cruise ships at any time in the world. Now, not all of them were going to stop in America, but remember CDC said, what we're going to do is bring those ships to dock in the United States and we're going to sequester everybody for 10 to 14 days on military bases. We thought that number could go as high as 250,000 people sequestered. Now that absolutely consumed the Department of Defense. We went in on that mission to say, look, we'll take any veterans and we'll make sure they've got medicines. We'll make sure they've got all all the healthcare they need and unload you from that. And um, so, and we were in six military bases in January of 2020. By March, as you know, you described it as February, but February, March, it began to spread across the country. By March, uh, substantial amounts of the disease that it was in America was actually in New York City and Southern parts of New York. And you know how everything blew up from there. Mm -hmm. It was actually in New York that we began accepting civilian patients from overwhelmed hospitals. And um, our expertise, frankly, is, in the VA is the care of very critically ill patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we do that, uh, we were happen to be blessed in southern parts of New York with our Manhattan Hospital, our Bronx Hospital, uh, and a hospital in New Jersey all of which had very, very substantial critical care expertise. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. We had also, during those few months, expanded our critical care uh, capacity by about uh, 50%. Uh, so we had actually added uh, 4,000 beds across the nation to prepare for the acceptance of, uh, of not only veterans, but also um, uh, other healthcare systems that were overwhelmed. May I ask you just a very humanistic question? So between December of 2019 and March, as it's getting, you know, really bad in our country, um, you know, as a leader, as a physician, are, how are you feeling? Are you scared? Are you overwhelmed? Are you, um, are you just kind of in action mode? What's, what's happening for you as an individual? So I think one of the things to lead organizations, look, I've led in combat. Um, and, you know, I think we all wonder when we're training as military officers and enlisted, uh, how are you going to respond the first time you come under fire? Yeah. Um, you know, I have very deep faith. And my faith as an anchor allows me to believe that if today is my day, then so be it. Um, that doesn't make me braver or less brave than anybody else. But having dealt with combat and the loss of soldiers in combat allowed me to prepare for this situation. Now, mm -hmm. this situation was completely unique in a hundred years. Nobody had tried to do this. Now, I had um, one of the books that's in the center of my library is The Great Influenza. Mm, yes, I'm familiar. And the Great Influenza. Um, is, is a book that I love because the first 75 pages really talks about the science that is medicine and how we became what we are as a scientific profession mm -hmm. and how we moved from some of the places we were in the 1700s, 1800s up to where we were in the early parts, uh, well, frankly, during World War I. So, um, no, was I prepared? Absolutely not. But one of the things I've always believed is that God gives me whatever calm I have today to prepare for the chaos I will face tomorrow. So whatever situation I'm in, I must make absolutely the best use to build my team, to create diversity and thought in that team. I'm not talking about diversity, the way people talk about diversity right. uh, in today's conversation. What I'm talking about is I want people that have had different experiences than me that can help me solve a problem that no one's ever seen before. Uh, I always worry when my team looks at me and says, well, we all agree. I'm always looking for a contrarian. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Let, me, let me give you an example of that. I mm -hmm. talked a few minutes ago for your listeners about uh, Southern New York and Manhattan. Um, I made a decision that we would create COVID positive and COVID negative hospitals. And that seemed like a brilliant decision that I would move all my patients from Manhattan into the Bronx and that I would have a COVID free hospital in the Bronx and a COVID positive hospital in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Well, that was great, except nobody told the patients. And so even though we thought we'd communicated with the patients, patients show, showed up knowing they were sick. They didn't know if they had COVID or not. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with COVID positive patients in the COVID negative hospital and vice versa. Sure, sure. So, secondly, nobody told the virus. <laughs> so we had, we had people that were infected yeah. uh, in our staffs. Mm -hmm. And what we realized was that this whole process was a bit inane. And in fact, when I'm saying it, it sounds just sort of stupid that I thought that I could segregate these communities. Mm -hmm. And you remember when the New York City mayor and governor were criticized. Well, their problem was their facilities weren't prepared to create COVID positive, neg COVID positive neighborhoods and COVID negative neighborhoods. Yeah. And that's what we emerged in in individual facilities. Now think about the implications to this. Mm -hmm. You wanna deliver a tray to somebody's room. You can't walk in and out of the room in a COVID positive patient. You have to double your staff. You mm -hmm. have to create handoff points. You have to create cleaning points for people moving in and out. Mm -hmm. So what was I dealing with? I was completely overwhelmed but surrounded with a team of people 
that had all, some of them had been to combat, some of them had had dramatically different experiences. Um, and um, as a team, we made a decision that about 50 of us, there were 6,000 people in the central office at VA. Remember, this is an organization of 175 hospitals, 1,200 outpatient clinics, 363,000 employees. We made a decision about 50 of us would stay in the building just to be face-to-face, -to, -face, to share concepts as quickly as we could. Wow. The reps were sent to telework in order to protect them and to protect the, the areas. So was I overwhelmed? Yes. Was I scared? Yes. Was I the pillar of quiet uh, determination? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because the most important thing you can do as a leader is to be the calm in the center of the storm. When everyone else is melting down, you must be the calm in the center of the storm because if you're not, the organization cannot respond. Mm -hmm. I, I genuinely believe that. And what I hear from you is that you have kind of a core belief that the calm that you have has been created for you, right? That, that your belief in a higher power gives you everything that you need to face the chaos that will ensue. So that, yeah. that must just be going through your mind over and over and over. It is um, a basic concept that God will put you wherever you're supposed to be. Get over it. Get over yourself. Mm -hmm. Get over your ego. Mm -hmm. And um, just make the best decisions you can. And realize that these are situations where you get to about 60% on your decision, where you have a greater likelihood of success than failure. And then you make a decision, but be humble enough to recognize that that was a rapid decision. And that if you made a mistake like I did in Manhattan and the Bronx, then, then change direction and do that very transparently and publicly. Now, what's the advantage of that? It'll show everybody that works for you that your ego is not fragile and that you welcome every one of your leaders to take the same sort of risk. Now, this is government. This is government in an organization that um, had been tremendously criticized from 2014 to 16. These leaders were still digging themselves out of that emotional trauma. And I'm telling them, take risk. I've got your back. Is that really going to happen? In the greatest, in the greatest um, you know, healthcare crisis in 100 years. Well, that's exactly right. And if you read that book, The Great Influenza, you recognize the fact that a lot of things that were happening were exactly the same as what had happened in 1918. Mm -hmm. And so um, you begin to look at how people respond. Now, you opened this um, interview with the discussion of, of resilience and how you keep yourself from wearing out. Mm -hmm. Well, part of that is is really recognizing you're in a marathon. I took a vacation during those these 18 months. Now, there was a lot of discussion about that vacation, but I had to do it very publicly in order to say to every one of my leaders, it's okay to take a week off. Yes. It yes. is okay. And you talk about um, provider burnout. Provider burnout is about an inability to manage a team that can begin to unload the provider. Uh, we as providers are not terribly well-trained in, in managing. Usually we're very bright as providers. We've been told how smart we are for our whole career. And then you end up with, with tremendous technical expertise, but your ability to manage a team and manage people is not trained. Mm -hmm. And including the ability to hand off what needs to go to somebody else. And, um, I, you know, it's one of the things that I've been blessed. I've led organizations of 70,000 people, of 363,000 people. I've led some of the biggest organizations in the nation. The only way you survive that is to bring people in that you trust and hand off responsibilities and don't look over their shoulder. Realize that if they've got a problem, they can bring it to you. But but don't, but you literally emotionally have to give up 
a lot of those things. And I'll give you some examples of that. Oh my gosh. Can I can I ask a clarifying question first? Because you absolutely can. I love this. I, I really love and appreciate this conversation, Rich, because as you know, so many physicians are burned out right now. But I, I want to turn back to what you were saying before that, that relates directly to this. And that is you said you were often making decisions, and, and correct me if I misheard this. Um you had to have like about 65% confidence in the decisions you were making. Yeah, I said 60, but uh, okay. you were close. Yes. Yeah. So, so here, here's the basic concept. In, in most government, there's a zero defect mentality, right? Because somebody's going to come back in the media or in Congress yeah. or the president, somebody's going to come down and say, you know, how could you be so stupid? So people want to get things perfect before yes. they go forward. You can't do that or the crisis passes you by mm -hmm. in this kind of event. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect example of get to a situation where more than likely you're right. Yes. And that's a subjective call. And then make a run at it. So, and, then, and then the other piece you said that I think is so critically important and such a beautiful leadership trait when done is, and if I mess it up, I'm going to take ownership for it. I'm going to ride the ship and we're going to try it again. And I don't think that's indoctrinated into most leaders. Um, I think you're right. I think it is in the military mm -hmm. um, because everything, single thing we do, we do an after action where mm -hmm. people literally take their rank off mm -hmm. and um, it gets pretty brutal of what went well and what didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it, it was ingrained in us but it was very difficult uh, for us to get to the point of sort of exposing um, our weaknesses. Let me give you an example of that. Yeah. We established a centralized operations center that literally hundreds of leaders twice a day came on. And we talked about what we were seeing, what our future predictors were seeing. We brought in some uh, outside contractors, as well as our uh, predictors were would literally, we were trying to see two weeks in advance. I wanted to know by county and by city, what healthcare systems were gonna be overwhelmed so that I could make sure that I was bringing in appropriate assets to the nearby VA medical center. I also had mobile ICUs that I could insert into a community. I wanted to see that two weeks in advance. I wanted to know they were going to run out of beds before they knew they were going to run out of beds. Mm -hmm. And so we we did those twice a day. We did one hour in the morning, one hour in the afternoon, where we went over that. And then immediately, the the community we were talking about would talk about what they were actually seeing on the ground and wow. whether this was accurate or not. Sure. And we got very, very good at predicting where people were gonna run out of beds and where we were in trouble and where we weren't. It also allowed us to move our own staff around. And um, you know, we moved large, we moved over 6,000 staff around the country um, to, uh, to begin to respond to these kinds of events. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I talked a little while ago about handing off responsibilities. We were tracking Italy and remember the Lombard uh, region of Italy, mm -hmm. um, literally about half the population was in quarantine. They had a complete collapse of their emergency response system because they all got COVID. They had collapse of their oxygen systems in their hospitals because they froze from high flow oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, I handed off to my chief of staff, the sustainment of our workforce. And he went on to negotiate uh, with, um, the Office of Personnel Management. When, when the pandemic started, it took me between 100 and 140 days to hire a nurse. That was unacceptable. My goal got to three days. Literally, I wanted to interview you. And 24 hours later, I wanted you filling out your W-4 and be at work a day later. So mm -hmm. three days. Mm -hmm. We ended up hiring 85,000 people during the 10 months from February to the end of 2020 in order to expand our capability and make sure we didn't collapse in response. Mm -hmm. At one time, I think the highest I had out my at one time uh, due to COVID, uh, either infection or um, quarantine was 24,000. 
And uh, so I, it, it took tremendous effort, but you must, I, and there's no way I could have taken fixing government hiring and mm -hmm. keeping my eye on what needed to be done. It, it was a team-based sure. approach. And it's the only way I survived. Now during this time, I lost my brother uh, due to delayed mm -hmm. healthcare. Uh, he didn't die of COVID, but he, he had a ruptured gallbladder from refusing to uh, to go to an emergency room. And um, he was just afraid of COVID, I think. I, I don't sorry. think I'll ever know that for sure. I lost my dad due to COVID. And, you know, so there was tremendous emotional turmoil. My son uh, was down visiting my dad. He got bilateral uh, pneumonia from COVID. So there was tremendous push and pull strength. So what's the point yeah. I'm trying to make? is the point I'm trying to make is I began the process. I'm a, I'm a leader that leads by moving around. I wander around systems. So I, on an average year, I would take 170 flights um, around the country just to see people, to talk to people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that during COVID because nobody wanted somebody coming in to potentially infect them. And I didn't want to carry it back. So I started doing videos mm -hmm. off of my iPhone mm -hmm. and I made a two to three minute video for every employee in the VA each morning. Wow. And each morning at 7 a.m. we would release this homemade video of two to three minutes of whatever I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. When I talked about the death of my brother mm -hmm. and then correlated it to, you've got to take care of yourself, Amy, because you can't put off your your routine healthcare or something bad's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I got thousands of responses mm -hmm. and I erased the size of the organization from this massive organization that had huge distance between the CEO, me, That's and right. the person cleaning the floors in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I had cleaners, I had nurses writing to me, sometimes thousands of emails a day. We had to put a whole team on just saying thank you for your response and screening them because some of them were so personal that mm -hmm. it required me to respond. And I responded to a couple hundred a day. Absolutely. Where, and it might've been just a thank you. But if you talk to the employees today of VA, they'll talk about this hundreds of videos that I released that were not about any magic, except here's what I'm thinking about today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Are we really running out of PPE today or not? And here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. And if I don't know, I'm going to tell you. So um, I really want to underscore a couple of things you're saying about leading in healthcare at any time, especially during a crisis like the pandemic. But I'm hearing you say things like we have to recognize that this is a marathon. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to be relational, relatable to everybody that we're serving. And I think sometimes healthcare leadership administration loses sight of some of that. And what you're saying is going back to grounding that to not just talking about numbers and dollars and right and bottom line, but talking about, are you taking care of yourself? I'm experiencing loss too. Um, can you talk to listeners about how do you balance this, this, what I think is a fine line between professionalism and being personal? Well, recognize the fact that every one of those employees is trying to figure out how to take care of their kids when the, the kids with schools closed, right? right? And every one of those people you're expecting to show up for work today, if they've got young children, who's taking care of them? You got to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And to talk about the fact that my own family was experiencing that. Now, part of this is not defining yourself by your job, but defining yourself with a level of humanity. And there's very few CEOs that are in the position that begin to, that don't begin to assimilate themselves into that job and suddenly don't relate very well to the humanity of the people they're taking care of. Wow. I've always believed, even when I uh, was a major general in the army, that that rank was owned by the American people. I didn't own it. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed some of the perks, including the fact that someone showed up with a car to drive me places and I never had to know the direction 
instructions to any place. But one of my the, biggest adjustments coming out of uniform is that I have to drive myself to places and figure gosh, out. That's how- like my teenagers. They just get in the car. They don't know where they're going. They just have a personal chauffeur. <laughs> you know, I think that's exactly right. So I think the hu- basic humanity is the absolute key that endures through the book that we're talking about today. Yeah. Is how do you identify the humanity and relate to the point that people want to follow you, that people want to join you? Mm-hmm. It's never about being the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe technically for a surgeon that's making a decision on a patient, yes, but but even then there's a team-based approach mm-hmm. that has to work effectively. And, uh, you know, when I, early in the war in Afghanistan, um, the British have a dramatically different model of trauma resuscitation than Mm -hmm. does uh, the American system. The American system, a surgeon pretty much led everything and in the midst of doing surgery was also figuring out fluids and all sorts of things, blood replacement. The British use the ER doctor. The ER doctor actually goes into the operating room room and manages all fluids, resuscitation, allowing the anesthesia provider and the surgeon to to work solely on what they're doing and doing their jobs Mm -hmm. with a third person present. And uh, I actually went to York, England to watch this train. And it was very difficult for our American surgeons to accept this until they saw how well it worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Afghanistan, uh, we had a number of situations where I'm absolutely convinced that we saved lives based on the fact that this was a different model. Than yeah. We well, we- it goes back to what you were saying before about managing overwhelm and burnout on an individual level. I think if I got your words right, you said, you know, bring people in that you trust, hand off responsibility, and then get out of their way. Don't That's don't right. micromanage them. Can you? Because right now, as you're, I'm sure, well aware, our healthcare system is um, experiencing a lot of staff turnover, a lot of physician burnout. Physician suicide is currently between three and 400, and that's a modest estimate. Um, and you're saying, look, I had the biggest job in the country, one of the biggest jobs in the country during this pandemic, and I still had to take time to take care of myself, to address things that were happening in my family. And I don't think that's taught into physicians. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the greatest weaknesses in um, professional education and the health sciences. Mm-hmm. And I, I frankly think it's true of all professional education. I think it's true of nurses. I think we've seen decades of nurses moving to higher and higher levels of education. And gee, the professional nurse must do everything. Mm-hmm. And the burnout is to the point that we're going to be short a million nurses yep. in this country this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get people to sort of stay on task. And you can't ask people to do everything for everybody. It's no, no, no different than that um, mom that you see with a, you know three kids under five trying mm-hmm. to hold things together get everything done. And she just needs a little bit of help. I feel the same way about medical uh, team-based work. Um, I still see patients and I see patients, uh, you know, a few days a month. Luckily, I'm a dermatologist. I can do that. And uh, most of these are old patients that want to see me. Uh, But, you know, I, I really try to bring into that daily practice, the concept that you know, somebody's going to be the scribe so I can look at you as the patient. We're, we're going to divide up our responsibilities and uh, allow us to maximize the experience for a patient. And I think it's one of the hardest things for people to do. And my friends that are in, uh, especially the trauma specialties, it's tough. I, we had a situation in 2004 in Afghanistan where uh, the enemy blew up an elementary school. Mm. And we were just overwhelmed with um, what ended up to be 25 children under age 10 uh, that needed limb amputations uh, from explosions. Mm -hmm. Um, 
most of my trauma providers began to come apart. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen? I, each of these people had a minimum of 10 years of experience Absolutely. in trauma services. Absolutely. It was because they couldn't separate themselves. There was no chance to even go home from the hospital. There was no chance to move off from task. And it was a perfect example. In fact, we began doing decompression and I began wandering around at two or three o'clock in the morning and grabbing providers who were at the bedsides of these children and, and saying, come on, we're going to just take a walk for 10 minutes. Yes. And it was allowing you to take down the compression uh, of this emotion that was way, way mm -hmm. here. It's the same problem people have with losing service members. And um, the, the medical care system can't separate themselves from the service member that comes in. It's their brother, their sister, their, mm -hmm. you know, their aunt, their uncle, mm -hmm. uh, their son, their daughter. It's, they can't emotionally separate themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the trauma surgeons said, look, I got 30 years of doing this. He said, like it or not, in almost every case I take care of, in a, the civilian trauma center I work in, he was in a reserve component um, surgeon. He said, I can figure out a way to say that, well, that victim, you know, he shouldn't have been drinking. He shouldn't, yeah. what, what the heck was he doing in that neighborhood anyways? You know, Justified. what do you think that fight yeah. for? Yeah. He was able to, he said, now the ones I can't, he said, I still carry around with me is this bag. Mm -hmm. And but in Afghanistan, with service members and these children, there was no way. There was no way to separate yourself. And um, I think it's one of the things when I look at burnout, there's this emotional connection of I'm responsible to fix everything. What, what is it that I can't fix? Okay. You know, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm responsible to fix everything. It is my patient to fix. And then I have all this emotional process and nowhere to put it. And I love that you did a simple and yet life-saving technique, I'm sure, which is let's just go on a walk and talk about what just happened. That's right. Um, and those are the times that you are just silent and yes. you get listen. So yes. let's talk just a second about in your life, in your listeners' lives, ill wind has blown into their lives of some sort. They had a relationship breakup. They'd lost a child. They had illness in a child. They had, you know, a problem in business. Yep. They had a business partner that something happened. What stabilized them against that ill wind? Mm -hmm. And there are things I've talked already to your listeners about the fact that for me, faith is a deep anchor, but so is my partner. My wife is, is a substantial anchor in my life. But you know people that lose their spouse and they do well. Mm -hmm. What else anchors them? Well, their family, their health, their source of productive income, um, their work that they feel satisfaction in, mm -hmm. their community. Mm -hmm. These are all things that anchors us. And I, I sort of think of my life as a tent. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an army guy. So I, as a tent with all these tent stakes, um, stakes and yeah. ropes. Yeah. And um, so I, I can remember very clearly when I was the deputy surgeon general of the army, we had a young man come in to, uh, 18 years old to the army. He's at basic training. He came in late for some reason he was isolated from the rest of his unit. Um, he didn't really know anybody. A uh, day later, his girlfriend calls up and breaks up with him. And he commits suicide. Mm. He's 18. He's 18. When you took his life apart, he did not come from a traditional family. In fact, it was an educator that brought him to the recruiting station because mm -hmm. no adult ever gave a damn about him. Yeah. There were no anchors in his life. And so think of the tent posts. Yes. Think of the stakes. Think of the ropes. Think about what anchors you in your own life. And this is what I'm asking your listeners to do. I love that. Is to think about what allows them to feel stable. Mm -hmm. Now, let's come back to stress. Mm -hmm. 
why do I do so well and why can I be the quiet, calm in the center of the storm? It's because I know I'm anchored and I've been tested over and over and over again Mm -hmm. in the 40 years I've done this. Well, and I love what you're saying too, Rich, that I I like the tent analogy, right? There's multiple tethered points that, you know, if your wife, who's a stabilizing force for you, were sick, right? You're going to pull on one of those other anchors, a friend, God, your purpose in your career, because you might need multiple resources. Yeah, people will say to you, and and I'm going to use a really bizarre analogy, so put up with me a minute. People will say to you, well, you know, I don't have all those anchors or I don't have faith. Okay, Uh, but but you do. And you need to spend some time thinking about them and and then you need some time culturing them. I agree. Um, You know, I I drive in Washington, D.C. a fair amount um, for my work home of some of the worst drivers in history. And there was a very expensive SUV in front of me. And he was clearly on his cell phone and he was weaving back and forth in the lane. And um, all of the other cars around him were reacting to his weaving and they were moving out of the way. Now, when he got to work and somebody said, well, you should never talk on your cell phone or text while you're driving. What he was going to say to himself, not not out loud because it's not acceptable. See, I do this every day and nothing ever happens. It's (laughs) because you're surrounded by people that are adjusting to you and there to help you. Because we were all, frankly, we're all enabling him, right? Sure. But, But we are providing that safety net and it is no different in the rest of our lives. You know, on a military base, Mm -hmm. uh, my last military assignment, I lived at Fort Belvoir in uh, Northern Virginia. But by the time the moving truck left, I knew every neighbor. For the next 14 days, we had invitations to people's houses for dinner because that's just what the neighborhood did. And that's, you knew everyone and you talked to everyone and you waved to everyone. And you said good morning to everyone. Think about the neighborhoods most of your listeners live in today mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. civilian side. Mm-hmm. They're completely isolated. Absolutely. The, the neighborhood that um, we have up in, um, in Washington, D.C., when I'm up there, mm-hmm. um, I know a single neighbor who is a retired uh, general officer in the Army. And it's only because we're both retired general officers. Mm-hmm. No one else even raises their head to say hello. You no. know, what? I, I'm going to I'm going to do a little some someday, Rich, we're going to get together and we're going to do a short, a small study because I read your bio and I will also raise you that you went to University of Western Michigan and Wayne State. And I am a fellow Midwesterner. Um, and so I also think there's a little bit of that <laughs> that make people just look out for other people and wave and get to know each other, um, plus, you know, dozens and dozens of years of experience. But when I saw that on your bio, I was like, oh, he's a fellow Midwesterner. Amy, um, I go back to practice in the Midwest because I just need my fix from good Midwestern people to um, take care of each other, who, if you don't start when the light turns green, it must mean you got something important going on. I'm not going to hold my horn. And uh, how different is that from other areas of this country? Amen. (laughs) I'll tell you uh, just really quickly. I took some of my great friends home when I was uh, way back in college. And I grew up in a small town called Norwalk, Iowa, just south of Des Moines. And um, we were at a four-way stop on Main Street and, you know, waiting for each other to go and waving. And they said, you know, do you know that person? And I said, I'm not sure. Probably. But even if I didn't, that's just courtesy here. So anyway, yeah, we can Maybe go on right. and on. <laughs> Look, I've gone on and on, and I, I appreciate how much you've let me talk. And um, tell me what you haven't accomplished that you would like to. You know, I, I'm ready to do what I call rapid fire. End, end of our um, chat here, if you have just a couple minutes. Um, so I have just a couple of, I think, fun, straightforward questions. Um, what's one thing, Rich, that you think people get wrong about trauma in medicine? I think that people get wrong the fact that they're impotent to control 
their response to it. Mm. And so uh, my short answer is uh, that your future and your response is always in your own control. Mm. Wow. If you could go back and talk to young Rich Stone, um, what would you say to him? Um, be humble earlier. Mm. Recognize that being the smartest, the most well-read um, doesn't create followership. You've got, if an organization is going in the right direction, let it go. Be the cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't feel like you've got to take credit for things when other people are going in the right direction. Just be their cheerleader. It will help them go well beyond any place you think the organization should go. Oh, be humble sooner. I love that. Um, if people want to be more in touch with you about your work and about your book, we're going to link up to it in the show notes. But what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, to, to talk, to speak, to learn more about your work? Yeah, my email is uh, stonericharda. No uppercase, no lowercase, no dots, no dashes at gmail.com. Awesome. We'll link up to that too. And the last question, the toughest one, um, it's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? I'm a diabetic. <laughs> if I reach for anything, it's going to be to wake my wife up and say, get me not to do but <laughs> keep, keep, me from, keep me from having the ice cream right now. <laughs> That's exactly right. I have to tell you, um, while in Afghanistan, I developed an Oreo addiction and my wife would ship two pounds of Oreos every two weeks. Oh and, my gosh. And um, I, I blame her for most of the sugar problem I have today. But that said, um, you know, if, if I was reaching something in the middle of the night, it would be searching the house for Oreos. Oh my gosh. And your wife would probably have to like pull you back. <laughs> exactly. Oh, um, thank you so much. I just want to say, and I, I said this before we hit record, um, you know, I am a law enforcement family and my brother served in the Gulf War and um, you led our nation's largest healthcare system during the one of the most unprecedented times in our country. Thank you for that. Thank you for your service. Thank you for this talk. Thank you for the book that's going to help so many people. Um, for those of you that want to go get that, it's called Save Every Life You Can. It came out in October and it is wherever you can get your books, right, Rich? That's right. On Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.